keeps shutting off on me. I think it doesn't want me to be heard today. Somebody is sabotaging me out there, aren't you? We will give this a go anyway. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and then the first part of verse 9, because I want you to see as we go through the rest of chapter 12 and 13 and 14, this is all an outflow of those first two verses. So listen as I read the word of, of God. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And then verse 9, the first part, let love be without hypocrisy. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice today. We rejoice in presenting this young baby, Isla, to you and asking your blessing upon her and the Hart family. We rejoice as Kinley has expressed his belief in the gospel through the wonderful ceremony of baptism. We rejoice today that our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And now we ask, as, as those who have received abundant blessing, change us. Do not allow us to be the same as we were before coming to Christ. Make us different. Transform us. Renew us. And make us more like Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. So as we begin today, I have a question for you. Who's your favorite movie character? I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have seen movies. More than one. Some of them, some of you probably way too many. And there's a character, there's somebody that's, that's captured your attention. That you look back and think, that character, that, that movie, that one person, man, woman, child, superhero, action figure. Who's the, who's the favorite character? Why? Why is that particular character, why ha have they grabbed your attention? Certainly the, the movie itself, the plot line, the storyline matters and, and the dialogue. It's got to have a good script. It's got to be a powerful moving story or something to get your attention. And that all plays into it. And maybe the cinematography also plays into it. But at least as significant as any of those things is the acting by the person portraying that character. It's crucial to the story. And what is it that makes that actor so compelling for you. They have to be believable, right? They have to be convincing. You have to be so lost in that character that you forget it's actually an actor. You're convinced that person that you're watching is really who they're portraying themselves to be. You know what I'm talking about. Take Gandalf, for instance. We love Gandalf. Who doesn't love Gandalf? He's the great wizard. Somebody raise your hand. I'm going to talk to you after the service. How can you not love Gandalf? He's witty. He's wise. He's courageous. He's diligent. He's faithful. 
He's resourceful. He's got his staff. They can make dragons fly and fireworks like crazy and do all kinds of things with it. How can you? He's like the epitome of the perfect grandpa who's, who's kind of like a demigod, right? I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. He's, he's wonderful. Well, can you imagine a, a youngster, for instance, who doesn't understand how this acting thing works, and, and he reads the story, he watches the movie of Gandalf, and then he meets Ian McClellan. <laughs> you can imagine the confusion going on in his head. Well, wait a minute, where's your pointy hat? Where's your, where's your staff? He would be disappointed, wouldn't he? To, well, you're, you mean you're not really Gandalf? Oh. Suppose you as an adult who knows better met Ian McClellan and found out that he's a, a cranky, foolish, obscene, dirty old man. Now, I don't know anything about the guy. I don't know if he's that way or not. But imagine you met him and, and, and you discovered that's how he is. It would be sort of disappointing. It almost seemed like a sense of betrayal, wouldn't it? Like, no, that... You're, you're Gandalf, you're better than this. But we shouldn't be confused. We shouldn't be offended when actors are not like their character because they're acting. That's the whole point. The ancient Greeks had a word for someone like Ian McClellan when he portrays Gandalf. Wait, come on now. Put it back up now, thank you. Hupokrites, which even if you've never studied Greek, you know what this word is, don't you? That's it. Hypocrite. It wasn't a particularly pejorative word in the ancient uh, culture. It just meant someone who was play-acting, someone who was putting on a show, who was pretending to be somebody else on a stage. In fact, for a, an ancient Greek hypocrite, the better they were at acting, the better their career would be, same as today. That was their job, and, and we shouldn't be offended to find out that these people are nothing like their characters. That's the whole point. They're trying to sell us on the idea and draw us in and captivate us through their acting. Their careers depend upon their ability to be convincing, to put on a really good show and to pretend to be who they are. And in the movie realm and on stage and in plays and all those kind of arenas, that's exactly what you want. The last thing you want is to go see a movie where the character is completely unbelievable and you see right through them. You want to be deceived, right? We call it the, the willing suspension of disbelief. But in real life, when you, found out, when you find out that somebody's been playing, play-acting, pretending, putting on a show, it is highly offensive, especially someone who says, I love you. That's not the way it's supposed to be. All right, you can, you can take that away. Paul here in verse 9 gives this exhortation about a renewed mind, a transformed life, a life given to God as a living and holy sacrifice. He says, literally in the Greek, he says, love not hypocrites. Those are the only two words. There's no real phrase here. It's just two words in the original. Love not play acting. Love not pretending. Love not putting on a show. That's what a renewed mind looks like. 
We love with a sincerity, with a genuine devotion to somebody else, and we're not pretending for anybody's sake. That's what he's getting at. That's what, that's what this uh, phrase is trying to capture. You know who knew something about hypocritical love? Our Lord Jesus. Think about what Jesus did. He shows up, and he picks 12 men, and he calls them to himself. We know them as the apostles. And he invests three years of his life showing them in real life, living color, God. He's God. In the flesh, he is God, and he draws these men to himself, and he, he shows them what it means to walk in the presence of God. And he teaches them. He gently corrects them. He loves them. He pours himself out for them, and he gives them a special job, a special calling to be his ministers, his preachers, his proclaimers, to take the good news of the gospel to the world. And he overlooks so much of their immaturity, selfishness, and he takes them up in the upper room, and he has a meal with them, and he he goes through the ritual of the Passover, and then he says, but I'm going to give new significance to these elements. This bread, I don't want you to think anymore of the lamb. I want you to think of me, because I'm going to break my body for your sake. And this wine, I don't want you to think of the blood of that lamb for the Passover anymore and put over the mantle on the door, but I want you to think of my blood, because I very soon I'm going to pour out my blood so you can be forgiven. It's the new covenant in my blood. And then he drags them out into the garden and he says, gentlemen, I need you to pray. Pray that you will not give in to temptation. Temptation is coming. Pray that the Father would give you strength to overcome temptation. And then he draws away from them a little ways and he prays. And he prays that the Father would give him the endurance to, to persevere through this. And he prays for them. And then he's interrupted in his prayer by this band of soldiers being led out by the Jewish leaders. And who's leading the pack? Judas, one of the 12, one of the men that he had handpicked, one of those he invested his time and energy in, one who had given special privilege to. It's Judas. And Judas shows up. He walks up. He grabs Jesus around the shoulders, and he goes, mwah, mwah, rabbi. He kissed him. Kissing. It's one of the most intimate expressions of love we have as creatures. There's the romantic, passionate kiss between a husband and wife, but there's also, at least in other cultures, we don't do this much in America, but in other cultures, they come, they still do that. Kiss on both cheeks. Look you in the eye kiss you, an expression of, I love you. And Judas walks up to Jesus, expressing, I love you, Rabbi. Jesus knew exactly what was going on, didn't he? Remember what he said? Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? You're play-acting. You're pretending. You're putting on a show for all the other disciples, but we both know what's going on here, Judas. 
This is all a pretense to get your money to hand me over to my enemies. That is hypocritical love, the pretending. Paul says, don't love like that. That's the heart of the world. That's the show the world puts on, non-Christians. This is what they do. It's really all about them. And they'll say, I love you, and they'll do things, but it's really to get an advantage for themselves. Paul says, Christian, you cannot be that way. You are a renewed mind. You are a transformed being. You cannot love this way. This is not what it looks like to have the mind of Christ. So as I was thinking through how do we illustrate this, I mean, you can imagine there are a million ways to take this. I decided to just sort of take the low-hanging fruit. I want to walk you through Paul's expression and description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. And we're just going to look at this and, and see what it would be like to be hypocritical and what it looks like to be genuine in our love. And here's what I have to warn you about on the front end. Do not, with all the pastoral authority I can muster, I forbid you from act from examining someone else to see if they measure up to what I'm saying. That's not loving. Let the Holy Spirit reveal your heart this morning and compare yourself to the Word of God and see what areas of your life are genuine expressions of love and what are those areas that maybe there's a little bit of pretending and showing going on. So he first begins with this simple statement, love is patient. Are you patient? Think about someone that you would say right now, I love you too. You would say this to a spouse if you're married, hopefully. Say this to your children if you have children. Children, you would say this to your parents. You would say, I love you to close friends. Hopefully, you would even say it to brothers and sisters in Christ. And if it weren't so culturally offensive, culturally offensive, you'd kiss them on the cheeks. Maybe we should start that, just a frack thing. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, it's in the Bible. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It's all over the place. You first. So think about that person or those people that you say on a regular basis, I love you. Are you patient with them? Or are you impatient? Is it offensive to you? Does it aggravate you that they never do things on your timetable? Are you frustrated because they're not doing it right they're not doing it quick enough. They're not doing it in the right way. Are you more concerned about your agenda than you are their well-being? Do you say, I love you, but to put it in a very, very simple example, you, you, you just can't wait for a little brother to get his pizza out of the microwave. You throw him aside and put yours in. His is not even done yet. This is not life uh, living example. I haven't seen that in my home too many times. But you see, I mean, even if something as simple as that, I love you, little brother, I love you, when it feels good, and we're having a kumbaya moment, I love you, but get out of the way, I'm putting my pizza in, in the microwave. I mean, it seems simple, 
but is that loving? And if you're willing to do that in those simple things, how many big things are you willing to say, get out of the way, I'm doing what I'm going to do, because it's really about me. See, that's play acting. That's pretending. I say I love you, but it's really I have to get things done on my timetable, and you better do it my way, or else I'm moving on. He says, love is patient. A renewed kind of love says, I'll wait. I will wait because I'm more concerned with you than with me. It says, love is kind. Now this, my, my favorite way to describe this doesn't always work for other people, but uh, I do have relatives in southern Missouri in the hills, and we call them hillbillies. So this is how this works for me. If you take the word kind and you take off the last letter, what are you left with? Kin. See, some of you know this. Some of you are hillbillies too. Kinfolk, right, is what we call them. And there's this sort of expectation of how kinfolk treat each other. They're kind. Now, sometimes if you've not been in the hills, you don't understand that sometimes you really do whack your older brother in love. And you lay them out. You're trying to toughen them up. You're trying to show them how to get along in the world. And, and so you beat them down. But what happens when you're done beating them down? You pick them up and you go and have a sandwich together. That's how it works. Are you kind? The person that you were thinking of or the people that you say, I love you to, would they say, he's kind to me. She's kind to me. She's gentle. She's caring. She's concerned for my well-being. She wants what's best. He wants what's best for me. Would they say that about you? Do they feel that from you? Do they experience that from you? Or do they experience more harshness, edgy words, biting words? So much of this comes out in what we say, even more than what we do. The, the kind of degrading, demoralizing phrases. See, that's, that's play acting. I love you. And then out comes the filth. Out comes the words that tear down rather than build up. They, they don't go together. It's play acting. It's, it's pretending. It's putting on a show because you want something out of them, so you say, I love you. Or people are listening, or you want them to speak well of you, so you say, I love you, but you don't treat them kindly. Paul says, that's not renewed love. That's not transformed love. That's that's hypocrisy. He says, love is not jealous. So you've got people that you say, I love you too. How do you respond when they succeed? What's your first reaction when things really go well for them? When they do it? Is your first reaction, this is wonderful. I am so happy for you. How many people can I tell about your accomplishment? That's what love does. The opposite of that is you downplay it. It's not that big a deal. I could have done that. In fact, I've done it three times. <laughs> Who do you think? Eh, so what? It wasn't perfect, you know. If you had tried a little harder, how many parents, that's what their kids hear from us. Okay, yeah, it was fine, but, you know, if you'd have tried harder, if you'd have spent more time, it could have been a whole lot better. Do you rejoice when they triumph? 
when they succeed, that's what renewed love does. I'm not trying to sabotage your achievement. I'm not downplaying it. I'm not minimizing it. I'm not afraid to acknowledge it because it might expose that I'm not as good. Love says, I care about you. I'm, I'm so thankful that you've been able to accomplish this or experience this. This is wonderful. That's what love does. Love is not, does not brag or is not arrogant. It's kind of a similar vein here. What happens when you say you love someone, but you really don't love them, at least you don't love them all the way, and they accomplish things? We are so quick to, now we've got to exalt ourselves. Let me tell you about all I've done. Yeah, yeah, you climbed a 14er, I climbed an 18er. Okay, it wasn't exactly 18, but I bet it was higher than yours. We brag, we boast in what we have done. Love doesn't do that. It's not about me. I don't want to go around telling you all the things I've accomplished. That's, that's about me. I'm trying to draw your attention to me. That's not love. Well, it is love, isn't it? It's love for me. Love for myself. It's not love for you. Love is not arrogant, he says. It's not wrapped up in, let me just explain to you how awesome I am. So the person that you say you love, the people, the group that you say you love, are you trying to draw attention to what you've accomplished? Tell them how awesome you are? Or do you want them to feel awesome? That's what love does, he says. Love does not act unbecomingly or inappropriately. So the people that you love, do you do things in their presence that you really shouldn't be doing? Things that are inappropriate, things that are unbecoming. That, that's an old word. We don't use that word much anymore, but it means to be fitting, to be proper. There are things that are improper. There are lots and lots of things that are improper for Christians to be doing. There are jokes we shouldn't be telling. There are movies we shouldn't be watching and favorite characters that shouldn't be our favorite characters. There are books we shouldn't be aware of. There are words that we frankly just shouldn't be saying. There are attitudes we shouldn't have. There are crass, vulgar kinds of things. And that I'm using, I want to use that word really broadly. We tend to narrow down on just a few things, but there are just a host of things that just are not proper for Christians to be excited about and enthusiastic about, and take pleasure in. We just shouldn't. They're not pleasing the Lord. And yet, sometimes we're tempted to, to do those things, to applaud those things in the presence of someone that we love. What's the problem with that? Well, we might be tempting them to enjoy things they shouldn't be enjoying either, and almost giving them the okay, because, well, they're doing it, then I guess it's Okay. But it's also now putting before them a stumbling block to where if they engage in that same behavior, now you're causing them to sin before their Lord. Is that loving? Let me see if I can do something to drag you into the mud pit with me. Of course not. That's not renewed love. Renewed love says, I am going to live and act and speak in such a way 
then I don't draw you into a pit because I'm not in the pit either. I'm going to act in a way that pleases Jesus so you're encouraged yourself to act this way. That's what love does. That's what renewed thinking does. That's what transformed living does. Says, I want to help you please Christ, not be a reason why you're not pleasing Christ. He says, love does not seek its own. Probably could have just said that and been done. That's kind of the summary statement, the defining statement. So the people that you love... Would they say he or she seeks my good or seeks their own good primarily? Their biggest concern is pleasing themselves, making themselves happy, being satisfied, fulfilled in what they do. Or they say, that person who loves me really does love me. He wants my pleasure, my fulfillment, my satisfaction. She wants me to experience the best of all things. That's what love does. How, how can I make you happy, joyful? How can I help you grow? Uh, it's, not, it's not about what I receive in this relationship. It's about what can I give you. That's renewed love. That's transformed love. It's no longer me seeking my own. I don't care if anything ever goes my way. Now, you might be thinking, oh, that, that's just unrealistic. Is it? Is it possible for someone to be so devoted to others that he gives up his own life for them? It's possible. And you have the mind of Christ. So the people you love, is it their good you're seeking? Children, not just mine. All my kids are like, what? Junior hires, high schoolers, is your life about seeking your own benefit, pleasure, happiness? You would say you love your parents. You would say you love your siblings most of the time. Yet how much of your life is spent saying, I want what I want. I want the last cookie. I don't want you to have it. My kids last night, you know, I'm always picking on them. I'm going to use them as a positive example last night. My son brings in the last of a carton of cookies that they had bought and I think shared around with, with their friends in the neighborhood, and there was one left. And Gabe brought it in to me and said, would you like this? And I said, no. He said, how about we save it for mom? Yeah, exactly. That's an all moment right there. This is a little nine-year-old boy we're talking about, passing up the last cookie. He could have eaten it and not told anybody. But he wanted to give it to somebody else. That's renewed love. Way to go. <laughs> he probably had had 20 or 30 already and was about to be sick, but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that he meant it as an expression of love. See what I did there, son? I just used you as a joke so they would laugh and think I was funny, and that's not loving, is it? <laughs> He's shaking his head. No, it's not loving. <laughs> My dad's a hypocrite. Okay, this next one is probably going to get me in trouble, but I've been in trouble before. And since you have to love me, you're not allowed to say to me all the things that you're going to want to say. Love is not provoked. 
we have a word in our culture for provoked. It's called hurt. If you hurt me, if I'm hurt by you, I can do anything I want. Hey, you hurt me. I can feel whatever I want towards you. I can say whatever I want towards you. I can act out because you hurt me. And our culture condones this. You got hurt? Then yeah, let them have it. Yeah, they're a bigger jerk than you're describing. They should never hurt you. Yeah, get them back. The Bible calls that provoked. Provoked to selfishness, provoked to vengeance, provoked to hatred. But in our culture, we don't call it that. We call it, I got hurt. You hurt my feelings, so now I can do whatever I want. It's like the, the free pass. The Bible doesn't talk in those terms at all. Now, is it true that other people do things that are offensive to us? All, of course. But love is more concerned with the other person than himself, itself, right? And so you do something to offend me, love doesn't get provoked. Doesn't mean I want to be your best friend. Doesn't mean I'm going to invite you over for dinner tonight. But if I act and think and feel with venom, with vengeance, with anger toward you, I'm sinning. Doesn't mean there's no real pain and no real offense. That's not what I'm saying. That does happen. But how am I called to respond to that? How are you called to respond to that? To speak out of love, to think out of love, to feel out of love. It may be that you are praying for that person. And you may be praying in genuine, sincere love. Lord, they don't understand the kind of pain they're inflicting. I think the only thing that's going to get their attention is if you... Get, a, get their attention. But we got to be very careful. We in the New Covenant are not allowed to use the imprecatory psalms. That's not our place. And especially towards someone that we say we love. Husbands and wives, you get to practice this kind of love on a regular basis. Almost every day, there is something you could choose to be hurt by. Some of it's legitimate. Some of it you're just making up in your own head. Either way, renewed, life-transformed kind of love says, I am not going to get provoked to treat you unkindly or to think ill of you or to be standoffish and shut you out. I'm going to seek reconciliation. I'm going to set aside the hurt and love you. That's what love does, Paul tells us. It's not provoked. doesn't get upset. doesn't respond out of hurt. It gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. Because it's not about me. If I say to you, I love you, and then it's all about me, I don't love you. I'm play acting. I'm pretending. And you're not allowed to get provoked at me about that. He says, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. <sighs> that previous one wasn't convicting. This one probably is for most of us. 
They don't even get to take it into account. Come on. That's not fair. That's not right. I mean, if I don't call them to account for all the bad things they've done, who will? It's because I love them that I'm going to keep a track of everything they've ever done to me. Because someday, the Lord's going to use me, because the Holy Spirit isn't good enough, He's going to use me to point out to them all the horrible things they've ever done. Guess what? You're not the Holy Spirit. He doesn't need your help, thank you very much. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings conviction. And yes, He does use human instruments, don't get me wrong, but... The kind of thing he's talking about here is your goal is not really for their good. You're keeping track because you want vengeance. Because you want to be bitter, you want to hang on to this, you want to hold a grudge. Paul says love doesn't do that. The world does that. You know, three strikes and you're out, right? In a marriage, my husband, my wife does this two or three times, that's it, I'm done. That's worldly thinking. Renewed, transformed thinking says, I don't even remember that. You think, how can I forget? Try. I believe the Holy Spirit will help you. It doesn't mean it actually removes itself from your consciousness. It's not somewhere in there stored. That's not the point. Even God doesn't actually forget your sins, even though the Bible says he forgets, forgets your sins. He doesn't mean, it doesn't mean he forgets your sins. God knows everything. It means he doesn't remember them against you. And that's the call for us. I'm not saying ignore and forget that actually someone has offended you, but isn't that really what grace is? Yes, you have wronged me, but I'm not going to remember it against you. It's not pretending like it never happened. It's saying, I forgive you. I'm going to let it go. Because I love you. People that you say, I love you, toward do you have a list? That's play acting. I don't really love you because I got this list. It's pretending, it's putting on a show. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not get excited when bad things happen, when somebody sins or is sinned against. We've been, you've probably been there, huh? That little, you, you, you could never actually express this out loud, but inside that little joy, little happiness when somebody else gets caught, that's not loving. That's not loving. I knew, I knew they were going to get it someday. Yes! I can't say that. Oh, oh that's, that's horrible. I'm so glad God is going to use this for their sanctification. <laughs> That's pretending and play-acting if inside you're going, yes! Paul says, that's not love. We rejoice in truth, yes, but we don't delight in unrighteousness. And then he gives these three phrases that are just, they, they seem too much. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's four things, isn't it? Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Those are huge statements. Bearing, forbearing, persevering through whatever comes about. Love says, I'm committed. Love believes. It acts in faith. The belief is not in another person. If you put your faith in a person, you're going to be disappointed every time. Your belief is in God. I am trusting that no matter how awful this gets and how hard this gets, God is faithful to do what he said he would do. That doesn't mean there's never action to be taken. Sometimes very severe action has to be taken. Some of you have been down this path. Uh, Dwight and Anna aren't here, but Dwight has told this story on numerous occasions. There are times, for instance, when the most loving thing for a parent to do is send their kid packing. Now, if they're doing it out of frustration, anger, you have crossed the line, get out of here, where it comes across as, I, I hate you, that's sin on the parent's part. But there is biblical precedent for saying to someone, you have crossed a line, you are no longer behaving in a way that I can tolerate in my house. And for your good, I'm going to ask you to go be somewhere else. It's what church discipline is all about. Sometimes we as, as a church have to take drastic measures and make a hard decision and say to this person, because we love you, you have acted in such a way and continue to act, we cannot, for your sake or for the good of the body or for the honor of Jesus Christ, allow you to continue to pretend that you are a Christian when you're acting the way you are. And so we are not going to treat you like a brother. That's hard. That's severe. None of this means that there aren't times for significant decisions to be made. That's not the point. But even in those actions, our greatest and deepest desire is for their good because we love them. Sometimes that happens in a family. Sometimes that happens in friendships where we have to make decisions that are, that, that sounds like we're not believing all things, sounds like we're not bearing all things, but we have biblical precedent for loving them in this way. But even in those instances, we excommunicate somebody. We are hoping and praying and trusting that the Lord Jesus is going to use that to transform them. Otherwise, it's not love. We just got tired of it, didn't want to deal with that anymore. That's not loving. Love hopes all things. The people that you love, the people that you say you love, how strong is your hope for them? Are you looking at them through the eyes of optimism? Not a naive optimism, but a true, genuine hope that God can bring a difference here. It's not you. You're not going to fix them. But God can. Hope endures and perseveres through these things. And then he says, verse 8, the first part here, love never fails. Oh. You know what this means? 
This means that the people that you say you love, you cannot give up on them. Even if you have to do the hard thing, even if you have to make a very, very difficult decision, you never give up on them. Your love will remain till you die. Maybe the Lord will never bring reconciliation. Maybe nothing will ever happen in that person's life that's good. That's between them and God. But on your part, your love doesn't stop. That's renewed love. That's transformed love. That's love that's not conformed to this age. That is love that is transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know why this is? Of course you do. How can Paul say this? Because he met the man who epitomized this. And Paul himself received love from that man. Paul hated Jesus. Hated him with a passion. Was convinced that Jesus was the biggest fraud the world had ever seen. And he did everything in his power to not only snuff out the name of Christ, but kill all of his followers. I mentioned this in, uh, in Frack Talks, but I'm going to say it again here. When Paul says, I am the chief of sinners, he's not using hyperbole. This is not some false humility. And you should think you're the chief of all sinners too. No, he meant it. I killed Jesus' followers. I held the coats and applauded as they stoned Stephen. I was a living terror. I could have been the head of ISIS. Beheading Christians, great, whatever it takes. Because Jesus is a sham, he's a fraud, he's a liar. I'm glad he's dead, and I promise you he's not alive. <laughs> Until he's riding along in the road to Damascus, and blinding light shines from the sky, falls down on his face. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I don't know who you are, but I know you're the Lord if you can do this to me. And then he heard the words, the most terrifying words he could have possibly heard in that moment. I'm Jesus. You're wrong, Paul. I am alive. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the King. And guess what, Paul? I'm your judge. Three days Paul was blind. Three days wondering what's going to happen next. Paul was a good Jew. He could process, he had the whole Old Testament memorized. He could process through every word. He knew what happens when you do this to God's people. He's a dead man. Ananias shows up, says, hey Saul, you're not going to die. You're a chosen instrument of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to use you to transform the world. He loves you. He forgives you. What's going to stop you? Get in the water right now. Be baptized. You're clean. Now go serve. And the rest of his life, Paul 
understood more every single day what it means to love because he had been shown the ultimate expression of love. Once the gospel penetrated into his mind and his heart and he realized, I am the reason Jesus had to come and die on a cross because I'm a wicked man and I deserve God to be impatient with me. I deserve for him to keep a record of my wrongs. I deserve for him to be provoked to vengeance and anger against me. Jesus said, I'm not going to do that, Paul. In fact, I'm going to suffer the wrath of an angry, holy God in your place so that you can be set free. Paul experienced that firsthand. And so he can write and say, this is what love is. This is what love does. It forgives. It's patient. It's kind. It's gentle. It keeps no record of wrongs. It's not easily provoked. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It perseveres. It endures. It believes. It hopes. Love doesn't fail because Jesus Christ didn't fail. How does Jesus look his disciples in the eye? How do they look him in the eye? I mean, there's Judas, but remember, he's not the only one that betrayed his Lord that night. When that mob showed up, they hit the road. Peter, three times, I don't know the man. You know what Peter said in modern vernacular? When that girl said, you were with him, weren't you? He said, damn you, I don't know that man. That's what he said. It says he cursed. Called down curses from heaven, denying that he even knew Jesus. My mom's going to watch this video. I'm going to hear about that. And then he had to go look Jesus in the eye after the resurrection. Jesus didn't say, oh, Peter, you are pathetic. I've had it, Peter. That's enough. You did the big one. That's it. You're done. He said, Peter, you love me? feed my sheep. You already did the play acting part. You already put on a show for everybody and exposed your hypocrisy. Now is your love real? Great. Go take care of my people. Because Peter, I love you. I gave my life for you. I didn't fail. I went to the cross. I hung there naked and let everybody cast insults at me and mock me and shame me and deny me and throw out their little taunts. You know, yeah, yeah, you saved everybody else. Save yourself, Jesus. <laughs> Look at you now, big stuff. And I hung there. And worse than that, I endured my Father in heaven for the first time in all eternity being ashamed of me turning his back on me, 
forsaking me. And I did that because I love you. And love doesn't fail. And I endured the worst thing that any human being has ever endured. And I believe that at the end of it, God would be faithful to save you. Paul knew all this. If you're a Christian, you know this. You can't be a Christian if you don't understand this. You can't be a Christian if you don't come here saying, I'm a sinner, as Kenley acknowledged in front of this whole group, and said, I need to be washed clean. You can't be a Christian if you don't acknowledge those things. And if you acknowledge those things, then you also acknowledge that Jesus Christ gave his life to forgive you. Why? Because he loves you. That's it. He doesn't need us. He's not thinking, you know, I got a lot of work to get done in this world, and that Doug guy, he's got some skills I think I could use. So you know what? I'll take him. That's not what he saw. He didn't look at you and think, you're pretty smart. You're attractive. You've got a lot to offer. All right, yeah, they're worth dying for. That's not why he did it. The Bible reduces it to one word. Love. If you know that gospel, and you know you don't deserve anything but wrath from the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's given you nothing but grace and love, how is it possible for any of us to turn to someone and say, I love you, and just be put on a show? We can't. We must not. Renewed minds, transformed minds, lives that are truly offered as holy and acceptable offerings to God include a love for people that is not play acting, it's not putting on a show, it's not persuading anybody of anything that's not true, it's genuine devotion to their good. So as the team comes forward and we're going to sing of the love of Christ, i got to ask, and if you are comparing what I just said to somebody else, like a spouse or a friend, I told you you can't do that. It's not allowed. But what would the Holy Spirit want your heart right now to, to wrestle with? I hope you'll ask him. Just you and him. Holy Spirit, you know all things. Where am I play acting? Where am I pretending? Where am I putting on a show for others and I just need to change those things? We're all in process. None of us have arrived. None of us are all the way there. None of us love with a perfect love. So to acknowledge that you fail in this, guess what? That's the good stuff. I fail in this. Problem is, see, the Lord works me over all week before I get to come work you over. And it's not pretty sometimes to see, okay, yeah, I'm, uh, I, I say I love my wife. I say I love my kids. I say I love my people. And, and yet sometimes I do rejoice when things go south for them. That's not love. And sometimes 
I don't, I don't write down my list because somebody might find it and then I'll be exposed. But God knows that list I carry around of, oh yeah, he said this or she said that. That's not love. That's putting on a show. Where would the Holy Spirit say to you today, that part right there, that's not love. And the good news is, Christ already paid the price. You don't have to suffer the consequences of your failure. You're not going to spend eternity in hell. You're not going to be punished in any way. You are forgiven. If you're a Christian, you are forgiven. Now it's time to act like it. And so ask him, as we sing about the love of Christ, ask him, show me where I'm play acting that I can get it right. That I can renew my mind in this area. That I can live a transformed, sacrificial offering to the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you do that? Let's stand together. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to sing. Father, you have given us the ultimate example. We're not worthy to be compared to the Lord Jesus. But you have given us the mind of Christ. You are renewing us. You are strengthening us. You are changing us. You are transforming us. And so I ask for myself and for my brothers and sisters here, don't let us walk out of here the same. Father, if there's somebody that needs to come and, and pray with the elders and confess and receive their prayers, if there's somebody here that needs to say to their husband or their wife or their child or their friend or their brother or sister and turn to them and say, I have been hypocritical in my love towards you. Give them the love today to get it right that we might be a people that shows the world this is true love. Amen.